0: Welcome to the International Voices Podcast. I'm your host and moderator, Udo Flug, and I have the honor to oversee the Office of Global and Cultural Affairs in Arts Missoula. We started International Voices in February of 2020. To listen to previous episodes from last year and this spring, please visit artsmissoula.org. Click on Global and Cultural Affairs and visit radio, and podcasts. International Voices is a monthly podcast brought to you by Global and Cultural Affairs of Arts Missoula and The Trail, 1033. As part two of International Voices podcast celebrating Women's History Month, launching with a global focus featuring Melissa Kilby, Executive Director of Girl Up, at the start of the month, we now close out March with a special edition focusing on a human rights crisis disproportionately affecting indigenous communities, especially with gender-based violence and trafficking affecting women and girls right here in Montana. Today, we hope to bring our audience's attention to the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Movement, referred to as MMIWG, and the building of an invaluable International Database established in Montana, tracking missing and murdered Indigenous women across the United States, Canada, and recently expanding to Latin America and the Pacific. Some of you may be familiar with the image associated with the MMIWG movement of a red hand painted across the mouth of females, symbolizing the voices of missing women and girls being silenced and the color red known by some tribes to be the only color spirit sees representing calling back the spirits of women and girls that have gone missing. In today's podcast, it's my honor to present to you the brave woman heeding the call to create the database and offer indigenous communities resources and hope as they grapple with the trauma of losing or missing their loved ones and empowering victims to rise. Our guest speaker is Anita Lucchesi, the founding executive director of the Sovereign Bodies Institute. It's also my pleasure to introduce our guest host, for this special edition of International Voices, Michelle Guzman, the Director of American Indian Student Services at the University of Montana. We hope this podcast will resonate with and provide resources for UM students in Missoula. Before I hand the mic off to our special guests, I also want to bring attention to the importance of this dialogue honoring Women's History Month being presented to you by two women with indigenous heritage. Anita is of Cheyenne and Italian descent and Michelle is of Shoshone, Bannock and Mexican American descent, which brings authenticity to the topic today. Now I invite them to share what they have to say With our audience.
1: Hello, my name is Michelle Guzman. I'm a Shoshone Bannock of Fort Hall, Idaho, and I'm a board member of the Missoula Arts Board. And it is my honor to have been asked to do this international voices podcast today. This podcast is a continuation of the Women's History Month for March. Today, our guest speaker is the Executive Director of Sovereign Bodies Institute, Anita Lucchesi. She's the founder of Sovereign Bodies Institute, and her collection of data of the MMIW has evolved to MMIWG2, and this data has become so well-known that it basically has started movements and really awareness of missing and murdered Indigenous people throughout the U.S. and Canada. Anita, why don't you first tell us your story, like what tribe you are, where you're from, your education, your influences, and how did you get to where you are today with the Sovereign bodies institute like basically how did this all start
2: man that's a lot of information that's a long story Um, (laughs) so i'm a cheyenne descendant and i grew up in northern california in a kind of rural area along the coast just south of oregon i i'm currently joining this conversation from tono othom lands in southern arizona where i'm pursuing my phd in geography at university of arizona my bachelor's is in geography from uc berkeley And my master's degree is in American Studies from Washington State University. So that's kind of my educational background. The way that I kind of ended up in this movement and doing this work was kind of by accident on my part. Like there was never a day where I woke up and said, like, I'm going to make a database today was a little more organic than that. I've been working as a freelance cartographer for almost 10 years now and it was a skill I picked up as an undergrad studying geography and I became really passionate about maps because I think I was learning how to do it at the same time that I was reading a lot of post-colonial theory for the first time and that combination was really empowering for me kind of collided with, you know, me reconnecting with my culture, my community all around the same time. And I also, that's the first time I experienced violence, like all in that same 18 month period. There was a lot going on for me. And of course I was, you know, young, I was 20 at the time. It was a pretty formative moment for me professionally, but also personally. And that's how I really became passionate about maps and how maps can help us make sense sense of colonialism and violence. So then if you fast forward a few more years, I ended up in a very abusive relationship that ultimately led to me being trafficked. That was kind of the culmination of um, quite a few experiences of violence with different people at different times in my young adulthood. When I escaped that situation, I moved to New Mexico and like I had never been to New Mexico before. I didn't know anybody there, but I took a job there and was trying to start my life over. At the time, I was done with all of my master's degree coursework, but I hadn't finished the thesis. And so I was really trying to get that done because it felt like one of the few things that I had left you know, in trying to kind of rebuild my life. I was working on my thesis, which was on using maps to tell stories of genocide in Indigenous communities. MMIW was one of the issues on one of the maps, and I needed a good working number of how many cases had occurred in the U.S. and Canada. And at that time, it was about six years ago, there was lots of lists for Canada, but none of them really matched. There weren't really any lists for the U.S. And so I thought, what if I just cross-reference all of these lists and news articles, and I can come up with a number that way. I was really naive in thinking that that project would have a start and an end. Six years later, it's now become my life's work. I say it's an accident because it definitely wasn't intentional for the project to grow that big or to take on much of a life of its own, It wasn't a big part of my academic work, and it's still not. My academic work is on Indigenous ideas of mapping. It's something that I felt really called to do as a survivor and as somebody that was trying to make sense of the violence that had happened to me. The first couple hundred entries of the database, I typed with a broken hand. That's kind of the spirit of the work. That's how the database got started. In late 2018, the database um, started getting a lot of press attention. And at that time, it was still just, you know, humble, ground grassroots done at my kitchen table. It wasn't funded. It wasn't part of an organization. It was just a passion project. As it started getting more press attention and started getting picked up and used by community members in really exciting ways, it felt like the database needed a more formal home. And so that's why we created Sovereign Bodies Institute. We launched SBI two months later. So it happened really fast, but I think it's because SBI is something that our communities really needed. So now SBI is not not only home to the database, but is home to all sorts of research projects on gender and sexual violence against Indigenous peoples that really stress the importance of tribal sovereignty and Indigenous self-determination, and also survivor sovereignty and work that's led by families and survivors who have been directly impacted. And then the other half of our work has evolved to be direct services. There's lots of really great service providers throughout Indian country to support victims of violence, but I think Every single one of them is um, overextended and doing the best they can. So we try to help out by providing services as well. Most of the survivors who come to us for services are folks who have tried other agencies first and aren't getting their needs met or are experiencing some kind of institutional form of violence that your average DVSA program isn't necessarily equipped to handle. So, for example, sexual assault by a police officer. And then we also provide direct services to families of missing and murdered Indigenous people. Those services are really diverse and we try to be as holistic as possible, but we want to be there as a resource. And I think, you know, the other I know I'm speaking for a long time. The other noteworthy thing I'll say about SBI that kind of sets us apart from other organizations and other work on this issue is that we've never allowed colonial borders or colonial ideas of anything to define our work. So the database was always inclusive of the U.S. and Canada combined. When we launched SBI, we expanded the database to include our Indigenous relatives from throughout Latin America as well. And we're now in the process of expanding it to include our Indigenous relatives relatives of the Pacific. So we're trying to actively build that kinship and build that solidarity across colonial borders, even within, you know, one colonial state like the United States. We're also trying to move beyond colonial ideas of gender and indigeneity. We've always included trans women in the data. We're building an LGBTQ2 database. We've always included folks who are descendants who may be, you know, indigenous to an area outside of the U.S. or indigenous to a tribe that's not federally recognized because we think it's important. If you're indigenous, you count and you matter. That's, that's what we try to um, uphold in our work.
1: Wow, that's amazing, and I really like that you are inclusive, you know, like the colonial borders don't exist for you. That's amazing, because that was kind of one of the questions that I had, So you answered that. One of the things you did mention was that most people who come to your services have already tried other services. So what do you, the sovereign bodies do that's different? Well,
2: I think we have a lot more flexibility than other agencies because we're not federally funded, we don't take any federal or state funding because we don't want to be accountable to any federal or colonial agencies because we're community funded and funded through you know private grants we have a little more freedom in in what we're able to to provide or what we're able to do so for example survivors who may need assistance in relocating and moving to an area where their abuser may not find them or we have grandmas who are raising their grandkids because their the parent was was murdered or is missing and those grandmas like that's at least 18 years of help they're going to need like victim services will help them with the initial paying for the funeral and things like that but victim services isn't going to pay 18 years of groceries and braces and basketball uniforms and all the things and that, and those are things that a parent would do if they were there and so we step in and we provide that we try to you know like i said be as holistic as possible but also work from the understanding that trauma really doesn't have an expiration date especially for families who are grieving and missing a murdered loved one or even you know survivors like that healing journey takes a long time Time, and there's acute needs there that don't necessarily expire because the violence happened five or 10 years ago.
1: So, gosh, I'm just amazed at how much is in what you said. <laughs> so this question I have for you is from one of our, our college students here, because I work, I work with students who go to the university. And since the collection of your data, what have you learned? Are there any trends or commonalities of the MMIWG2 or like ages, location or how it occurs or what do you find? Or is there anything that's like the theme or goes across?
2: I think there's some shared experiences that are, you know, more prevalent, but I think there's also this like, And I understand where it comes from. There's this like strong desire to find out what are the trends or what are the hot spots? Because if we know that, then maybe we can fix it. There are places that have more known cases than others. And there are, you know, some issues that are clearly things we need to address, like domestic violence fatalities. But there's so many cases where, you know, there's no, there's no answers at all. The majority of the cases in the database are unsolved. And the majority of them, you know, the community may know some rumors here or there, but there's, you know, not a lot of information available publicly. So the majority of cases, we don't know the specifics of why they happened per se, other than, you know, the broader issue of a colonial system that does not value the life or humanity of Indigenous people. I would say the most common trend that we see across all of the data is law enforcement negligence and complicity, and that's reflected in the amount of cases that are unsolved. But it's also even the cases where an alleged perpetrator was identified or even may have been charged, the justice system fails these women and their families constantly. And frankly, so do law enforcement. I've never, I've worked with hundreds of families in the last five years, I've never met a family that had a truly positive experience with law enforcement. They may be out there, but I haven't met them. And that tells you something. That's no longer just one bad apple. That's a systemic issue with a system that does not work and does not serve us.
1: Yeah. Wow. Okay. So my next question is, have you noticed any changes in data with the COVID since the lockdown of COVID? Is there any things that have changed or increased or decreased or? There's been a lot more death. And I think that's,
2: you know, something our communities know very well, unfortunately, you know, not just COVID related deaths, but it seems like I know there's a national and an international dialogue on the increase in domestic violence, and certainly that is the case. We have seen more domestic violence fatalities than usual, but even other forms of violence that aren't necessarily between two partners or between two people living in a home together, it just seems like, I don't know if it's the cumulative stress and trauma of what's going on in our communities, There's been just a lot more violence that doesn't make sense, a lot more violence where it's like murder that's not tied to any kind of like previous relationship. It's just something that happened because people are on edge. And so I think there's also that's reflective of a broader issue of a serious mental health crisis across the new country. COVID really made it much worse in that communities are now saturated in death. Um, so many of our communities are losing really beloved elders that are, you know, knowledge keepers and and language teachers. And it's, it's really overwhelming. Anyone in the world right now, I think, you know, is struggling to feel a sense of hope. And that's starting to change as vaccines become more available and COVID rates are going down because of season change. It's been a lot. And there's been some really great strides in making vaccines available to tribal communities. It's unfortunate that that didn't also come with a much larger investment in mental health resources and in violence prevention resources.
1: So, okay. So, with the Sovereign Body Institute, and you, you know, kind of gave us a broad picture of what it does. So, what is Sovereign Body Institute's mission. Our
2: mission is to uplift indigenous survivors of violence, including families of missing and murdered indigenous people, as the experts to address the violence our communities are experiencing, whether that's as researchers and knowledge producers, as like artists and data visualists, as solution designers, or as storytellers and as healers. The fundamental idea behind SBI is that those who are impacted by the violence truly know it best and truly know how to address it best. We just need the time and the resources and the support and the authority to start dreaming up what what these solutions could look like and putting them into practice. And that's what SBI tries to make space for.
1: Okay. Oh, I love that. I love that indigenous, the uplift indigenous families as the experts and researchers. I love that. Do you know of any legislation being considered regarding the MMIWG-2? Federal legislation that I think is
2: really important to discuss. And the first is the Violence Against Women Act, which passed the house last week and you know hopefully will make its way through the senate that bill is really important for the mmiw movement and for any country because it would restore uh, tribal jurisdiction over non-indian offenders who commit sexual assault trafficking or child abuse on tribal lands which would be huge right now tribes don't have jurisdiction over any of those things if the perpetrator is non-native so put all of your good energy into, you know, willing VAWA to pass the Senate as well. Aside from that, last year, Savannah's Act did pass and become law. So Savannah's Act is about data collection and investigation of MMIP cases. And there's a provision in it that specifically says, and this is something we fought pretty hard for, it specifically says that tribes have the right to create their own guidelines around investigation and data collection of missing and murdered tribal members from their community. I really want to encourage all tribes to exercise their sovereignty by developing those guidelines for themselves. There's an open invitation if tribes need help. SBI is willing to help with that. You don't need the feds to do it. You don't need to wait for them. You don't need their input. You can design it for yourself. And we're actually trying to do kind of a pilot project to show people how to create those guidelines in a way that really puts families first. And we're focusing it in Montana. So there's an open call if there's any families of a missing or murdered Indigenous person listening, or if you're an Indigenous survivor of violence or a grassroots advocate who works with families or survivors, we really want your input and would love for you to participate in this project. There's more information on our social media definitely check out that or you can contact us on our social media or via email. We can get you signed up. We're really wanting to create a path forward for creating guidelines that put the needs and expertise of families first.
1: That Yeah, exactly. And I love that, you know, not that we don't have to follow the feds just because that is such a common theme, especially with tribes is under the federal government, right? And so everything everybody thinks they have to follow or conform. So I love that. So what do you hope to see happen in your future work? I would love for our work to no
2: longer be needed. That's the end goal. I have dreams of being a florist someday. <laughs> <laughs> I, think flor- I mean, cause it's such a happy job. Like it's baby showers and weddings and prom dates. Like it's, I would love to be part of people's happy moments. And right now I'm mostly part of their sad moments. I'm hopeful, but I'm not uh, married to the idea of, you know, all of the violence ending in my lifetime. That would be beautiful and wonderful, but um, we'll see. So, you know, aside from that goal, what I hope to see is more generations of survivors and and families who are empowered to take more leadership in our communities, not just in this movement, but in all sorts of capacities. I think, like, one of the things i most I most love about SBI is that we have a Survivors Leadership Council that's made up of indigenous survivors of trafficking and survival sex work and every single person on that council does incredible things in their community not just around trafficking or around violence but some of them are foster parents some of them work in shelters some of them are tribal leadership um, some of them work in health care some of them work in like state or provincial level politics they all do incredible work in all sorts of capacities in their communities and so my My hope is that by role modeling survivor leadership in our work, we're able to encourage more survivors to take leadership in their community and also encourage our communities to really support survivors in that path. Because I think it's kind of, it's one thing to say like, yes, you can do it, but it's another to say like, and we don't care about your past because it's it's something that makes you who you are and who you are is beautiful and powerful and smart. I think especially when it comes to survival sex work, there's a lot of people in our communities who are talented and smart and have so many things to contribute and they don't get the opportunity because of something in their life from like 20 years ago that the community will never let go. That's not healthy. That's not healing. And that's not consistent with the values of what I think, or at least what I think the values of the MMIW movement should be. So my hope is that through this work, survivors are given more platforms to shine and and to serve our communities.
1: I know we're winding down on time, but I have just a couple more questions. It says, after looking at your data and your research and hearing all the stories that you have since you've done this, do you have any advice or any for our community what direction would you give them or what would you tell them or to help them how do they go about doing this
2: we actually get asked that question quite a bit and it's hard to answer. Like we'll get emails of like, where do I start? How could it help? You know, that could be a challenging email to answer. And so kind of in response to folks asking us that question, we worked with families and survivors and leaders in the movement to build an MMIWG2 organizing toolkit. And it's free for download on our website. It's like, I think it's over 150 pages. So it's, quite extensive. And it's short chapters, like short, you know, two page essays. And then a lot of it is interactive, like quizzes and activity guides and worksheets, because we wanted it to be less about us telling you what to do. And more about us giving you the tools to figure out what your community needs. And there's chapters on data, policy, kind of boots on the groundwork, like organizing searches, healing activities, fundraising, all, like any, any kind of piece of the movement that someone might be called to. There's a chapter in it. That way, there's really an entry point for everyone to get involved and hopefully some like hands on tools on how to figure out how to do that. So again, that that's free for download. on our website. I really encourage people to download it, print it, make copies, share it. It's free for the community and and we hope that it's
1: useful. For our listeners and community, to help support efforts exactly where do they go and where can they find your information?
2: Our website is sovereign-bodies.org. We also are on Facebook. Our page is just Sovereign Bodies Institute. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Safe and Sovereign. We're also on Instagram as Sovereign Bodies. Those are kind of the primary ways to follow us and our work. I also, while we're on the phone here, just want to give a shout out to our Christ crisis line we do have a 24 hour crisis line so if there's families that are going through a hard time or a survivor that's in crisis and really needs support, call or text us on our crisis line. It is 24 hour. We may not answer right away because we do a lot of emergency and triage work, but we will get back to you as soon as we can. You don't need to be like an enrolled tribal member to be eligible for services with us. As long as you know who your people are and who your community is, that phone number is 707-335-6263. You can call or you can text and, and we're here for you as a resource
1: thank you Anita thank you for all your information I really really appreciate it and I enjoyed learning all that I have just learned in our short conversation about sovereign bodies I want to thank you and I want to thank you for your work you have done and I started out as just you know you thought it was going to have a beginning and an end and so thank you for continuing this and helping helping our Indigenous people, because that data has been so important. Not having it it was just, it's like putting those numbers to it really, really helped. I mean, it's really, it started movements and vigils and brought a lot of awareness. And so, so thank you. Thank you for doing what you've done. And I know it's hard work. I know it's very hard work. So, so very much appreciated. Thank
2: you so much. Thanks for inviting me to participate in this. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you, Anita and Michelle, for such an eye-opening discussion today. We are glad to share these important resources and services with our audience and hope it will inspire people to seek help or inspire them to organize support in our local communities. On that note, March has been an important month for the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Movement as far as legislation goes in Montana. A trio of bills tackling this crisis in our state unanimously passed in the House and received majority approval in the Senate this month. Once the House and Senate concur, these bills will go to Republican Governor Greg Gianforte, who in 2019 introduced Savannah's Act, a bipartisan bill that addresses the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls epidemic, which unanimously passed the US House of Representatives in September, 2020. So we will be keeping a hopeful eye and ear on this. Speaking of the Senate and closing out our podcast special edition, honoring Women's History Month, on behalf of Global and Cultural Affairs at Arts Missoula, we would like to congratulate Deb Halland for becoming the very first Native American cabinet secretary in U.S. history and only the third woman ever to be confirmed to lead the U.S. Department of the Interior. This monumental milestone will undoubtedly inspire and empower an entire generation of girls to aim high. As always, thank you for listening. Those of you who are regularly tuning in to International Voices know that being of German descent, I usually end with a German farewell. Dankeschön fürs Zuhören. International Voices is brought to you by Global and Cultural Affairs of Arts Missoula and The Trail 1033. This and previous International Voices podcasts can be found at artsmissoula.org and the trail 1033.com. If your interests are in global and intercultural education, programming, cultural and global competence and international affairs, we hope you continue to listen to international voices.